0: title of the message I want to look at is The Immutable God, and it's going to take a long time in this message for me to lay out what I'm really wanting to say. I'm laying a foundation, okay? There's something I really want to get to here, but to get to what I want to say, I have to say a lot to get there, okay? So just listen and uh, learn. So this is going to be kind of a, a teachy, preachy kind of message, So, what does it mean that God is immutable? It means that He does not change. He cannot change. All right? It's an impossibility. It is contrary to His character. Hebrews tells us that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of turning in Him, there's no ability for Him to change. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, He says, I, the Lord, do not change. This is interesting. So you, old oh descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Just think of that. If, if God was a changeable God, how many of us would not be here today? All right. I think, I, I think we'd be getting a lot of zaps of bolting, of lightning, and well, that one's gone. Well, you made me mad today. You know, I'm glad he's not, he's not uh, bipolar, you know, and one day wakes up uh, you know, totally bummed and wanting to destroy everybody. The next day he's happy as can be and wants to bless him. You know, God does not change. He does not change. And so let's look at some of the dynamics of what that means for him to be changeless or immutable. So God cannot change because he is timeless. Time is a creature, uh, change is a creature thing, and it goes in chronological order. We go from infanthood to adolescence to adulthood to seniors to the grave, right? Change goes on constantly in our lives. There is no person on this planet that is not dealing with change. Constantly, moment by moment, the change is going on in our lives. But because God doesn't change, and He says, I have set my affection upon you, we are not destroyed as a result because He gives us time. He gives us space. A a season to repent. A season to get right with Him. And so that's good. So He is patient because... He is a timeless being. God cannot change because He is perfect and infinite. So, what it means there is for Him to be perfect. It means that that every dimension of His His character is absolutely perfect. There is no flaw. There is no error. And and it's the idea of this God that is so big, so great, and so infinite that we can't even comprehend what that means. We are we are our people that are time-bound, limited people, and we have an impossible feat to try and understand a limitless God, a God who has no beginning and no end. It does not compute in our minds. It goes against everything that our world naturally says, even though we have within creation and then ultimately within the Word of God all these wonderful truths about this God that does not change. So for God to change, that would have to mean He is bad and needs to become better, or he is good and becoming better, Right? You have to go one way or the other. If there's a change, if he's perfect, that means there is no need to change. And if he's infinite, that means he is complete and absolute in the fullest, completest sense of the word. And so here's this God that cannot change. Cannot change because he is perfect. God cannot change because he is omniscient. He knows everything. Now, if God was not omniscient, that means he could change because he could grow in knowledge. God cannot grow in knowledge. That is a creature thing. That is something for men and angels, not for God who knows everything. Because he knows everything, he knows everything about everything that there is, and there's no ability for him to change because he's infinite in that knowledge. And uh, that's something we can't even comprehend because everything in our finite world has limits, Our knowledge has only so much. I mean, I have a a master's in theology and church history. And, you know, the moment I graduated, I mean, 95% of it was gone out of my brain. I mean, I don't know what happened to it, you know. But yet everything he knows, he knows, and he knows infinitely. And there's no end to it. He never forgets. He's perfect, and he's complete in it. And so here's this God whose very essence cannot change. What is he? You want to know what? We don't know. We don't know what he is. We don't know what his essence is. Now, we are from the dust. And from the dust we go back to. When your body goes in the grave, if Jesus doesn't come back first, you are going to turn back to the dust. That's just the reality of it. We don't know what angels are made of, but God is not made of what angels are made of because they're created beings. God is something totally, completely, absolutely different from anything in all that is out there, and what he is in his very essence cannot change, where what we are does. And so here's this God that in his very nature of who he is, he cannot change. He cannot change his attributes. That means what he is in his character, in his attributes, are absolutely consistent constantly. He cannot change. His attributes cannot change. He cannot grow in his attributes. He cannot grow in love. You understand? If he grows in love, that means he's not complete. That means he's not infinite. That means he's limited and he's growing in knowledge. That means he's not omniscient. So the aspect that God is infinite in love means that He loves infinitely and there's no end to His love. But I don't believe God has what is so popular to speak about today as unconditional love. I do not believe that's biblical. I mean, it's everywhere. People say it all the time, all kinds of, you know, know, songs and everything else. I don't see that in Scripture. But I do see a God that's infinite in love. And I think that's a whole different thing. And so His attributes remain the same. He's infinite in love. He's infinite in mercy. He's infinite in wrath. Okay, we'll see that a little bit later. That's some of the seriousness that we got to understand. This God does not change. He does not change. He cannot change His plans. He can't change his plans, because God does not change. What he knows, because he's omniscient, he knows. And when he makes his plan, it is going to happen because he knows, and then he has the power to accomplish it. Now, how this works boggles the mind. And because people can't figure it out, they try to put God in this little box, and he won't fit in our little box. We try and figure, well, you know, because of this, God is sovereign, and he's sovereign in a way that he has no, that that he does, that he has all of his creation in this place where they're just little basic robots with no free will. And that's the wonder of God is that he is absolutely sovereign and yet grants men and angels a free will, yet in the reality of that free will, he brings about his perfect will. His plan cannot be thwarted. No man can thwart his plans. He is going to do what he said he will do absolutely every time without fail because he can't change. What he said he's going to do in his second coming, he is going to do. What he said he would do in his first coming, he did, and he did completely, and he did it perfectly because he made the plans before creation even came into existence, before time began, he made those plans, and those plans will come to pass. And because God cannot change, his promises cannot change. His promises are absolutes. They're not open to opinion or discussion in one sense. They are absolute. What he said he will do, he will do. And he will do it all the time according to how he has said it. That's the nature of who this God is. And that's something that we really need to understand. In Psalms 145 verse 13, it says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises toward all he has made. And you know, we really do have a terrible time with that. We have a terrible time. We believe some of his promises and other ones we don't because it doesn't work in the way that we think or the way that we act or what we're experiencing in that moment. We somehow think that his promises are not true. But that needs to be something that that we need to see change, because God wants to do something radical in the life of His church. He wants to do something, something powerful through it, and it's going to take a church that believes. It's going to take a church that knows this God is faithful to His promises, that He cannot break His promises. He cannot. And so He's waiting for a people that will begin to believe, a people that will begin to trust. Because God cannot change. His holiness cannot change. He is infinite in holiness because mankind says particular sins are acceptable today doesn't mean God agrees. Do you understand? It's irrelevant what the world says. It's irrelevant if 99.99% of the world says homosexuality is okay. God says it is evil. It is evil no matter what mankind says, no matter what they try to bring up, no matter what arguments or what political ideologies and lies they believe. God remains the same and what he has said does not change over time. He is absolutely immutable, and so he is holy, and his holiness is what defines for us humans what right and wrong is. Not what this world says, not what society says, not what people think, not your opinions. You can have all the opinions you want, and they all just stink like armpits. Good analogy, huh? They're stinky, man. They're terrible. Our opinions are worthless. But the truth is a different thing. The truth does not change. So what does the world try to do? They tried to bring in this thing called moral relativism or relativism in a general sense that touches all kinds of things. That relativism, it's all up to you. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And I've never heard something more ridiculous in my life. The God of truth does not change. His truth remains unchangeable because it's not based upon the opinions of man. It's not based upon his creation. It is based upon his unchangeable person. It's based upon who he is. So it will always stay the same. His morals will always stay the same. And what he will ask of his people, what he demands of his people, will always stay the same because God does not change. Now, I want to just take a moment here and speak about something that people try to add to God's immutability, and I see it as a, as a problem, and so I just want to touch on it for a moment. Actually, while I was sitting over there and we were worshiping, I just started to laugh at one point, just going, oh, man, this, those, the people who believe in what I'm going to share here, they'd have a terrible time with this church. <laughs> Oh, and what it is, it's the uh, impassibility of God, which is not true, okay? What is impassibility? It means that he is impassible or that he does not experience emotional change of any kind and he does not suffer. Now, you go and look this stuff up online and I'll tell you what, what comes out there is no scripture, man. I read one article, no scripture anywhere in it sheer philosophy that is bankrupt absolutely bankrupt and so the people who believe in a god that has no emotions have churches that have no emotions and so what you have is you have these dead churches with dead people in it that have a dead god and that's all it is and what a miserable thing And how in the world is the world going to be attracted to something that is so dead, so stoic, because they make a stoic God? And their arguments to try and defend themselves against their stoicism is that God is infinite. But yet even as they try to argue that God is infinite, they undermine the very arguments. I mean, the very thing they try to use as a defense of it undermines their whole argument. Now, I am so glad that God has emotions. I'm so glad. It's all over Scripture. All over Scripture. I mean, I don't know how people can go and come up with this stuff and say, well, because God doesn't change, He can't have emotions. But the idea then becomes that emotions are an evil thing. That came out in monasticism, you know, still in monasticism, which would be in the Catholic Church, the monks, and so on like that. But uh, the idea that emotions are an evil thing. Well, my fallen emotions are. I guarantee you in the garden, Adam and Eve had perfect emotions. I guarantee you in heaven we're going to have a perfect motion. You want to see some expressions of some awesome emotions? Read the book of Revelation. You're going to see some emotion there. You're going to see some serious emotion where, people, where the elders are throwing themselves to the ground, taking their crowns and throwing them at his feet. There's some serious emotion. I mean, can you imagine in Isaiah 6 where you have, you have this God that's high enough up and Isaiah seeing him and the angels are there saying, Holy, holy, holy. I mean, the stoic dead. I mean, it's just like, how can people come up with this stuff? I don't know. I mean, what was it? What was the worship? All I can imagine is these angelic beings that are in the presence of God, enjoying the wonder of his presence and just just proclaiming, proclaiming who he is, just out of the fullness of the joy of being allowed there. And that's what God calls us to. I'll tell you what, I'm not going to no stoic heaven. Okay? I, I'm, I'm excited about what he has for us because what we taste a little bit here now will be full, complete, and pure in heaven, okay? All self will be out of it, all the junk. We can worship with abandon and not have any baggage, <laughs> okay? No baggage. Yes, that is great. And so the creation of a stoic God is and a stoic religion is just a worthless thing, and uh Let me give an example here. Isaiah 63, verses 8 through 10. Surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their Savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he fought against them, and so there's just so much emotion here with God, just in these verses here, you know, the aspect of how he was distressed over the distress his people were, now of course his emotions are infinite, and they are perfect, they are not changeable, so God is not, doesn't have this problem of being uh, bipolar, but yet what he has is perfect, his love is infinite, it is perfect, His wrath is infinite and it's perfect. And there's no war between God's love and God's wrath because they are perfectly operating in him and being manifested through him. And so this is the wonder of a God that we can't figure out. And if you figured him out, then what you figured out is not God. You've made your own God. And so I'm glad that this God is beyond what we can understand. Israel had been delivered from Egypt with the strong hand of God, all these miracles, bringing down the superpower of the day. And there was probably two to three million people at least because the army that came out of Egypt, if I remember correctly, was something like almost 750,000 men of of age for battle. So that's not including women and children and and the, the elderly and so on. So you had this this humongous amount of people that are, are being, was delivered from Egypt, and God is, is providing for them. So he's taking care of them, gives them water. Of course, they do some complaining, and he would have gave them water whether they complained or not. They just wouldn't have been on the bad side of God with that. But uh, he provided for them, gave them food and, and, and all this stuff. I mean, he was just uh, being uh, very good and loving to them. And so as you have in the wilderness, you have 2 to 3 million people that are being led around by this thing that is is had to be scary, it was a pillar of, of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night and i don 't think it was this big. I think it was like huge and I think when you looked at it, man, it was this thing that was just terrifying and and when God was leading israel that that pillar of smoke, that theophany of God of the Holy Spirit, a theophany is a physical representation of God. So here's this theophany of God leading them, of the Holy Spirit. When he wanted to move, he, he, the, the, the pillar moved. When he wanted to stay, they stopped, and that's where they camped. And it was just astounding. So imagine you're one of these, these people groups around there, and you see Israel coming, millions of people with this pillar of fire that's leading them, and the stories of the superpower of the world been brought to their knees. They were scared. They were scared. So what happened is is King Balak of of the Moabites, uh, he hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. He figured, well, if he cursed the Israelites, um, then they would become a defeated people. And in Numbers 22, it says, Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moabite and, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. So like I said, he hired Balaam. So the first time Balaam goes to come to him, um, the Lord forbid him to go to the king. The second time he sends some higher officials and the Lord says, okay, go with him. I'm not going to go through the whole story. But when finally Balaam comes up to, to King Balak, this is a portion of his prophecy. Here's this, this, this man that we just really don't understand. He wasn't a follower of the Lord God Jehovah, but yet the Lord was using him and prophesying through him at this time, and so he's kind of a strange individual. It doesn't matter now for me to try and and say anything about that, but here's part of the prophecy that he brings out to Balak. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I mean, that is packed full right there of the immutability of God, of this God that cannot change, of this God that is absolute truth and has never, ever spoken a lie. What he speaks is truth. And if you want to know the truth, you look at what he says and you'll have absolute truth because he has made sure that the word of God came to us that we can know him and we can know what is truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be lied to, never like to be lied to. I hate it when you go and buy something like a car and then somebody lies to you about it and you find out later all the lies that was there and they just lied to try and sell it or whatever it might be. Lying, it's just, it's a, it's a terrible thing. With the discipleship that, that uh, we have, I have one policy there that says uh, lies are not acceptable because you can't disciple through lies. You can only disciple through truth. And if lies are there, you're just, I mean, it just stops, breaks down all the discipleship, breaks it all down. You cannot disciple a person that's not going to tell you the truth. And so, you know, here's this God of absolute truth that's revealing himself. God can't lie. Now, do we believe that? I mean, do we believe it? Not just in our head. Do we believe that God can't lie? That's a serious question because does our life look like that, though? God doesn't change his mind. Now, I have seen, you know, and I know this is the changeableness of man. I have seen this so many times. Somebody goes and says, okay, and I'll just use this church as an example. God, God told me that this is where I'm supposed to go to church. And then a month later, uh, I'm supposed to go over here now. I'm going, uh, you know, God is not schizophrenic. He's not, you know, He doesn't have these mental problems, and he doesn't have Alzheimer's, so he doesn't forget what he told you. You know, I mean, what we do to God is just horrendous. The way we try to accuse him of. God is not a changeable God. Now, I'm not going to say down the road he doesn't have another will for our lives. But usually when I see people that are so changeable like that, everything in their life is changeable. Everything. Nothing's stable in their life. So they're tossed all over the place because they do not know what it is to trust in a God that does not change. And so God doesn't change his mind. God means, or God's immutability means that he will do what he said he will do every time. Not sometimes, every time. When God says that he will forgive the repentant sinners, what will he do? He will forgive. How many times have you, though, not believed the truth of God where you question the reality of this changeless God and somehow you made him to be a changeable being that does not forgive sin then. Right? That's really what it comes down to be, that we don't believe the promises. We, and I'll deal with that, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll deal with that in just a moment. But, um, you know, he fulfills what he promises all the time. Now here's where, where I'm wanting to go with this, is we're going to look at faith. And for us to understand how faith is to operate, faith must operate in the belief of a changeless God. Why aren't we seeing the book of Acts now? Because we're not believing like they believed. We have not come to the place to believe in a God that is faithful to his word, that is faithful to his promises. If we want to see the book of Acts, and my heart aches for it, I want to see it. I want to see a move of God. But it's not going to happen until we become a people that start believing God. And it's like it's irrelevant what we see with our eyes. It's irrelevant what people say, that we believe. We choose to believe because God has revealed Himself as a God that does not change, as a God that keeps His promises, a God that does what He says He will do every single time. And it's up to us to begin to believe that. And until we believe that, well, then we're in sin. We'll see that in just a moment. Belief in God's immutability is central to the faith. And it's, it's irrelevant what part of the world you're in. Um, it may be in, in Western culture that we have a more intellectual approach to God, which gives us more problems than if you go to somewhere um, in Africa where people, they don't have all the education, they don't have all the baggage, they don't have all the rationalism, and they just plain and simple believe God. And they says, okay, God promised it, that that's good enough. And so they see the dead raised, the blind see, the lame walk. Okay, why are they seeing it? We aren't. We got supposedly all the head knowledge, but we got ourselves so filled up with head knowledge that we question everything about God and we doubt everything He promises, so we don't see the miraculous because we're not willing to put ourselves in that place of vulnerability that believes. And so that's where God wants us to be in that place where we start to believe His promises, no matter what people think or say, that we say that He is true and let every man be a liar. That his promises are are reliable, that we can stand upon them. We can base our life upon them. We can base our eternity upon them. Anything else is just changeable. Everything else can't be trusted. People can't be trusted. And, of course, to a point when they have the character, but that's only so far. They're still people. They're still changeable. Only God is the one who can be fully, completely, and absolutely trusted because he does not change. So faith embraces God's self-disclosure, okay? What do I mean by that? Faith says God has revealed himself as immutable. He's revealed himself as a God that does not change. So because I'm having faith in God, I believe that to be an absolute about him, I believe it, not just in our heads. We've got to get it to our hearts. We've got to get it where we are really laying hold of it where the promises become so real to us. Great faith sees beyond the veil of our humanity and frailty to a God that is immutable, to a God who is all-powerful, to a God who does everything He says He will do every single time without fail. See, opinions about God are detrimental. Opinions about God are detrimental. They hurt us. They, they hurt our faith. They fer, hurt us seeing God do what God wants to do. They hurt us seeing the lost being saved and all the dynamics that comes with what unbelief does. Unbelief is a terrible thing. Feelings can be deceptive. How many times have you questioned God because you didn't feel in a particular way? And so you doubt God because of your feelings. But what changed? You, not God. You see, God didn't change. God stayed the same. He is unchangeable, but our, our emotions get in the way, our intellect gets in the way, and they become detrimental to great faith because great faith must go beyond feelings and emotions and even what we see with our eyes. So here's Moses. God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, okay, into a place of no escape. And from an Egyptian mindset, they would say, what kind of God do they have that leads them to a place where they are now stuck? And so Pharaoh followed them right down into the peninsula there, Sinai Peninsula, no place to go. But that's exactly where God wanted them, because now he was going to call Moses to, to believe beyond what he had. I want you to think about this. He had the Egyptian army on chariots, okay? I mean, those were like tanks of their day. So you have the Egyptian army on chariots. In these chariots, going to wipe them all out. You have the people in terror, complaining against Moses, wanting to stone him. You have all this stuff going on, and what did Moses have to do? He had to go and stop and push it all aside. He says, I choose to believe the promise of God instead of what I see, instead of what my emotions are feeling right now. I choose to believe. Because God does not change because the world goes into chaos. He stays the same. He is always the same. He can only be who he is, because he's immutable. And so faith accepts the fact that God is an infinite mystery. You know, as I as I've thought of this before, there are branches of some theology that just try to have God all figured out. And you know, really, what that is? That is unbelief. It is not faith. Faith embraces the mystery where there is revelation of who God is that I can know, and there's a place that goes always beyond that. And we just choose to believe because the revelation he's given us of who he is is so clear, so good, that my faith can have substance. He does not ask me to have blind faith, to believe in in nothing of substance. He gives me all kinds of substance, and then he says, okay, now trust me, now believe me. What did he do with Moses with the Red Sea? First, it was the ten plagues that came upon Egypt. Prior to that, it was the burning bush and and, and the other miracles that he did of his rod becoming a snake and so on. God built this man's faith so that when he finally came to the place of the Red Sea that he could believe something that was so beyond the natural that it could only be something that is done through the supernatural power of God. We remain so much in the natural, we never see the supernatural power of God. You understand what I just said there? We stay so much in the natural. We think so much in the natural that what we think in is unbelief, doubt, question. Rather than coming to the place of understanding him to the best of our ability and then gazing at the wonder of the mystery. And You know what that mystery should do? It should bring us to the point that we see him to the point that we can and then we see magnificence. We see magnificence infinitude We see a God so great, so glorious, we can't even fathom. And it should just produce awe. And that awe should not just be this thing of, of our mouth gaping, open astonishment. It should be an awe that produces faith in a God that is so glorious and so majestic. You see, God has revealed enough of himself to us so that we can know him. He's revealed enough of himself so that we can trust him. He's done it again and again. He has showed us how much how much in our own lives, individual lives we have of the testimony of God and how he showed us all these things, and yet then we still succumb to unbelief. We still succumb to doubt. Yet he showed us so much. He showed us again and again the wonder of who he is, the greatness of it. So our faith has substance, but the problem of our unbelief is that we choose to lay hold of the substance that he has given us, the evidence that he's given us that is there. Unbelief is not the absence of faith. I want you to hear what I'm going to say here. This is serious. Unbelief is not the absence of faith, but faith wrongly directed. Instead of your faith going to a, change, a changeless God, your faith goes to something changeable, something of this life, of your own opinions, of your own desires, of your own hurts or struggles or whatever. You define the world then according to your emotion and changeable life, rather than the reality of a God that broke in, a, in our world and says, I do not change unbelief is more despicable than what we understand. I'm glad that he's patient with us, okay? I'm glad he's patient. I'm glad he doesn't have this ego problem and he's just going, you think of me like that? Whack, 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 whack. You know? I mean, it doesn't work like that. He's patient. But I'll tell you what, in his patience, we could be so much further along if we just believed. So much further along. We could see him do so much more if we would just believe. So unbelief is idolatrous because it makes a God other than who he is. So what happens when you say, God does not love me, you're making a God other than what he has showed himself, what he has showed himself to you again and again, what He showed himself to you in the word of God. Yet that testimony is not enough for you to believe, so you choose to believe of your own emotion and your own opinions and your own hurt or struggles. It's idolatrous because it's creating a God other than who God is. Unbelief is accusative. It says, you are a liar, God. You said you forgive sinners, but I don't feel forgiven, so I must not be forgiven. Right? Isn't that really what it comes down to be? Because we accuse God. We say, you are not who you said you are. Now, I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad God is patient. I'm glad he's kind. I'm glad he works with us in this. But what he wants us to do is to make some great leaps in faith rather than, than wallowing in the same identical thing we've been wallowing in for so long. That we finally lay hold of his promises I'm enough that's enough of this emotional games that has driven me all over the place I need to start believing God unbelief is arrogant it's arrogant this it is God I know more than you I know more than you okay you said you do this well I say you don't It rises up in arrogance against God. It makes him to be a liar. Unbelief is abusive, self-abusive. It keeps us from seeing in our lives what God wants to do. And because we don't see him do in our lives what he wants to do, then he becomes harmful to others as well that are in our life. And so it's abusive. Unbelief is a terrible thing. It's not this little itty-bitty problem. It's a bigger sin than we understand, but it's one that we tolerate Instead of see what it really is, is God, this ugly thing of unbelief in me, God, it has such a hold in my life. Help me to get out. Help me to overcome. Help me to see what true faith is. And in the end, unbelief is absolutely, completely selfish. Because it's all about me. Right? All about me. My feelings, my wants, my ideas, my pride, myself, it's ugly. Faith is an action word so you have in luke chapter 17 the account of of 10 lepers that come up to jesus and you know the word for leprosy there can be a variety of things that are skin diseases and not just the leprosy we think of when we think of leper colonies that was one expression of it but they were because they didn't have the science we have today and they couldn't diagnose it the same way they bunched it all up so that uh, it would not be, uh, be, wouldn't spread type of thing. But we'll just make it that these lepers were lepers as we normally understand leprosy. And there were ten of them. And they had to, uh, as they went along, when they saw anybody, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean. And the purpose was it was to keep people away from them so they didn't catch the disease, so that, that they didn't uh, come up with it themselves. And so they couldn't be allowed into public settings. I mean, they were ostracized. I mean, it was a miserable, absolutely miserable life. You were separated from your family. You were separated from, from friends. Uh, the only thing that you had then was the fellowship of other lepers. That was it. And just a miserable existence. And you know eventually it was going to kill you. You would die from it. And, uh, you know, they the with leprosy is, uh, however it exactly works, but it, it, it uh, has a way of like dissolving or doing away with the extremities of your body. So as people are, are lepers for a long time, they'll have no f- uh, fingers or toes or nose or ears with it. And eventually they'll go blind. Not that leprosy makes people go blind, but it attacks the nervous system so they can't feel. Their eyes can't feel, they're dry. And so they stop blinking. When they stop blinking, their eyes start drying out and they go blind. Miserable life. So you know, just think of these ten lepers. They all have various degrees of leprosy you know, from one that may have been recently diagnosed and, and separated from family and friends to another that, you know, had to be be, be helped along because he had no fingers and toes and, and, and just a, a, a monstrosity with no nose or ears, you know, blind. So you have these 10 men that were in a place of utter hopelessness, okay? There was no hope. There is no cure from that kind of leprosy. There is no cure. And yet, in the Old Testament... Under the, under the Mosaic law, it said that, that if you were healed of leprosy, you could go to the temple and offer a sacrifice after the priest declared you clean, and you could then be allowed to enter back into your family and to life again. Um, but yet when we look in Scripture, we don't see any lepers that did that. So the two lepers we have in the Old Testament they didn't do that. Miriam was struck with leprosy because of a rebellion against Moses. She was unclean with leprosy for seven days, but then she was, was restored and allowed back into the camp of Israel. The other one is, is Naaman. And Naaman, he was a, a, a pagan uh, general, and he had leprosy, and he was healed. And when he was healed, he didn't go to the temple and offer sacrifice because he wasn't Jewish. The law wasn't a requirement to him like that. And so you have this this, this prophecy that's there, this law that is prophetic, that is ultimately pointing to Jesus, okay? And I want you to think about this, that all of a sudden, yes, there might have been some people that had skin disease of some sort that wasn't leprosy, that they could go and be declared clean and end back, but nobody who had leprosy, nobody was ever allowed back into their family because they were unclean until the day that, that they died. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and all these lepers are being healed. Can you imagine what that did in the temple? I mean, they're having—they're going to the temple now and demonstrating that they are healed. They're offering up the sacrifice. They're allowed back in their home. I'll guarantee you, man, it was upsetting things in the temple. It was upsetting the priests. It was upsetting the Sanhedrin. And so, as they're going along, there's Jesus, and they cried out, "Says Jesus, have mercy on us." Now, I want to say something here that's very important, and I want to say this rightly. I don't want it misunderstood. cry have mercy on us is absolutely worthless absolutely worthless could even be detrimental if there's no faith behind it it's not magical words you understand we've almost have that today magical words all you got to do is say have mercy on me and god jumps to attention but if there's no faith behind the words are worthless you can go to Jesus have mercy on me while you're in the practice of sin. And guess what? There's going to be no mercy shown to you while you're in the practice of sin. You want the mercy shown. It'll be in the rescuing you from sin. But that comes in the t- turning and the repentance. And so we have this idea that just because we say it, these men will demonstrate that faith was behind their cry for mercy. They will demonstrate it. All right? So now what happens is, is they cry out for mercy and... When Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. Now this is crazy, okay? Where's the priests at? The priests are in Jerusalem at the temple. Lepers were not allowed to go into cities, villages. They had to stay outside of them because that's where the people were. So now Jesus went and told these men that had leprosy, told them, says, you go into Jerusalem, you go to the temple and show yourself to the priests. And it says, as they went, they were healed. They didn't stand there and say, okay, I'm going to wait for my healing, and then when I do, then I'll go into Jerusalem. They responded to the command to go in Jerusalem, and they obeyed. And as they're heading to the city, we don't know how far that was, we don't know how long this went on, but as they're heading in, they were healed because faith was an action. They cried for mercy. They believed that God would show mercy to them. They went in faith believing, and mercy was showed to them, in the total healing of their, of their bodies. I believe it wasn't just leprosy left their body. I believe that the ravages of leprosy was healed as well. Those who had no fingers and toes, no nose, no ears, whatever it was, was all healed, was restored. The miracle was so complete and so astounding. There was no way that people could say, well, you're not really healed. The healing was there. They believed. But the faith had to be in action. Faith cannot be something that sits and does nothing. That's why we so often don't see things happen, because we don't want to put ourselves in the place of need. Now, you know, when I started, Jesse and I started a church in Detroit when I was 24 years old. I mean, we, they're poor. <laughs> you know, and we had to believe. We had to believe that God would supply. We had the church open seven nights a week trying to reach people off the streets and stuff. And so one particular night, Jesse is down there, has it open, and these kids come in. And and, uh, and this drunk comes in and goes up to her and says, you think God's going to pay your bills? I mean, totally drunk. You think God's going to pay your bills? Well, he's not. The reality is we had a bill. For the, for the mortgage payment, we didn't have any money to pay. And it was like, do what, the next day or something, you know? And uh, it's just like the devil says, you think God's going to do it? Guess what God did? He paid the bill. But you know what we want? We want to be in a spot where we never have to worry about it, okay? We want to be in a place where there's no need for faith. Because faith is uncomfortable. Faith makes me out of feel out of control. I don't have a handle on things. It means I must trust in somebody that is greater than me, that has made promises that he will do what he said he'll do. And I've got to be willing to believe that. And if we're not going to put ourselves in a place of need, then we're not going to see God do the miraculous. So why don't we see so often we don't see the miracles? Because we don't want to put ourselves in a place of need. And I'm not talking about we purposely go put ourselves in poverty to see if God's going to pay bills. And I'm talking about we put ourselves in a place of need. And where's need? There's need right out there in a perishing, dying world. They need the miracles. They need the signs and wonders. They're the ones who need the healings. They're the ones who need to, to, to be encountering a God that is real and present and powerful. They're the ones that need it. And we need to be people who have the anointing resting upon us because we are believing in a God that does not change, in a God of miracles that did in the book of Acts that he wants to do again right now in, in Dry Ridge. The same God to do the same things, but we're not in the place of really wanting to believe because that is very uncomfortable. Jesus ends up coming into Capernaum. When he comes into Capernaum, uh, a centurion heard about him. He never met Jesus. He heard about him, and what the centurion would be is we have to kind of understand that. Is A centurion, he'd be over 100 soldiers, and being in Capernaum, that means it was a Roman base, and it would be where they would do their uh, maintaining of order in the area. They were not police, you know, they didn't do what a police force would do, but they kept order and put down any rebellion, so that was his job. So the centurion is there, and... So you have a large crowd, and Jesus did a tremendous amount of his ministry out of Capernaum. I mean, where there are multitudes, I mean, multitudes outside of it. And so I guarantee you the centurion knew what was going on. It was his job to know what was going on. It was his job to know whether or not this was rebellion or what's taking place. And so he heard the stories, soldiers coming back, people coming to him, telling him all the miracles of what Jesus did and how the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are being healed. He heard the stories, and he believed. He believed, and so he has a servant that's dearly loved by him that's dying, and so we really don 't know where this man was at. was he a convert to Judaism? and I don't want to go through all, all that stuff, but he built a, a synagogue in Capernaum, and so as a result, the Jewish elders of Capernaum uh you know thought very well of the man so so what happens is is uh, The centurion sends some of these elders to Jesus, and what do they do? They come to Jesus, says, this man deserves for you to do this for him. He deserves you to heal this servant, and that's a lie, okay? None of us deserve his healing or his salvation or anything that he gives. It is his goodness and kindness and mercy that he does show to us, okay? So they didn't know what they were talking about, but Jesus wasn't bothered by it anyway, so he's on his way to the home of the centurion, But as he's on the way, the centurion finally decides to send some friends now. Not the elders, but some friends. And here's what the friends say to Jesus. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I know, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. So he's sending friends to give a message to Jesus saying, Jesus, don't come. I don't deserve you to come under my roof. So what we're seeing here, and this is so radical, you and I don't comprehend this, because according to to the way Romans would think, Israel was a subjugated nation, a conquered people. They looked down upon them. For him to say, you know, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. I mean, this man had some real humbling going on in his life. He had some real revelation of what God was doing in Jesus. So he, he was really... Grabbing hold of something here that was very powerful. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but here's what I know, okay? Say the word and my servant will be healed. So he knew that. That's faith. And when it's all over, when this is all done, he says, I've not found this kind of faith in all of Israel. And you know, it's so strange on how you have, I think at least three people in in the Gospels that had greater faith that were not Jewish, than all the Jews had, than all the apostles had. They had greater faith. And if that's not prophetic about God, what God was going to do for the Gentiles, and you and I are here today because of that. And so here's what he understood. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion understood authority. Now, I don't believe he thought that Jesus was God, okay? That would just be beyond his ability to comprehend. But he had all the evidence necessary to see authority. He speaks, it happens, okay? Not once in a while, every time. Everything he wills happens. It happens every single time. And so because of that, he says, I understand as a soldier. I command one man to do that. He does what I tell him to do. I command another. He does that. I have authority. I have those over me that command me. And because they have authority greater than my authority, I submit to them. And I do what they say. I understand authority. God is changeless. He is immutable. His authority is immutable. His authority is infinite. It does not change. So the authority that he has and the authority he wants to exercise is directly dependent upon our willingness to believe him. He has that authority. He has that power. He wants to release it, but he's waiting for us to believe. He's waiting for us to believe. This is not the name it and claim it type of stuff that's out there. I'm not advancing anything even close to that. But this is the reality of who God is as he has revealed himself as a changeless God. That he is a God of miracles. He did not stop doing miracles 2,000 years ago with the death of the apostles. He did not. There's not one single verse in the entire Bible that says that. He is still doing miracles today. If we're not seeing them happen, the fault does not lie with a changeless God, but with changeable man. That's where the fault comes. And you know what we so often do? We put the fault on him. Well, when you make your mind up, God, I've already told you what my mind is on it. You know, you're the one who chooses not to believe what I've told you already. You understand? The problem isn't him needing to change. He can't change. He's already revealed his heart. He's already revealed what he does and what he wants to do. He's just waiting for his people to finally lay hold of the promises and say, God, you said this promise. It is for me. You said it was for all generations. I choose to believe. And God, I've got so much unbelief. Help me to conquer this unbelief because it's so ugly and it keeps you from doing what you want to do in our perishing world. And so in verse 9 of that chapter when Jesus heard these things he marvelled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him I say to you I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. You know who's in you want to know who was in that crowd? The apostles. Can you imagine that? The apostles, all these disciples, and he says, I've not found great faith like that. Not in any of you men. None of you men have that kind of faith. That man has put you to shame because of the simplicity of that faith that says, I understand authority. He didn't understand that Jesus was God incarnate, so he had infinite authority. What would happen if we were willing to believe? In Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6 and 7 is about Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And the beginning of Acts chapter 6 is the picking of the first deacons. And the first deacons uh, were men of God. If we had deacons like that today in the churches across this country, uh, we would have a spiritual revolution. I mean, the problem is, is we don't hold to the standard anymore. And because we don't hold to the standard, we don't have that life in the church like we should. In verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders, miraculous signs among the people. Stephen, just a layman, just an an average old layman. You see, it's not about position." It's not that you get some particular position, and when you reach a particular position, then you have the right to do miracles. It's all about faith. You go to the Azusa Street Revival, and I have a a, a book of it, at least I think I still do. used to have an audio uh, version of it. Uh, I mean, the guy who spoke it was the guy who wrote it. He butchered (laughs) it. It was terrible, you know, hard to listen to. But the truths of it, man, was phenomenal. He went and brought out all these miracles, I mean, these unbelievable miracles like you see in the Gospels, like you see in the book of Acts taking place. And he brought out all the miracles that happened through little children. Little children, limbs growing, blind people seeing, diseases being healed because these little children didn't have the baggage of all of our unbelief. They just believed. They just believed. That's what God is looking for, that we come to Him like little children, that we have a childlike faith that just believes, that just believes that God does what He says He does. I want to close with a final thought here and the seriousness of all this. The eternal consequences, there's eternal consequences of God's immutability. We've got to understand that. And so this is serious. There's eternal consequences. God does not change. And he has told us very clearly that there's heaven and there's hell. And he told us who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. He made it clear. It's absolute. God does not change. He does not let people that should be in hell into heaven. And he doesn't let people that are on their way to heaven go to hell. God is faithful. He does what he says he will do. And he has laid out before us the promises that do not change, that God will forgive all who come and repent of their sins, that he will give them eternal life. He's given us promises. It's for anybody that will come to him and believe those promises. But if people refuse to believe those promises, then the other side of the promise is there of eternal separation. God cannot change. Those are absolutes. You can't negotiate with Him. You can't hope maybe at the right time at the end you might be able to come get into heaven if you're a good enough person. You'll never be good enough. You have to come to the place of repentance. You have to come to His terms. You have to come before Him and acknowledge the reality of your sin, your rebellion, your wrongness, your evil. And then in faith. You see it works when it's in faith. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, God. And then you've got to believe that He will have mercy on you. And what's that mercy going to look like to those who repent? It is going to be Him bringing forgiveness of sins to them. That they are literally going to have a change that's going to happen in them that is so radical, so miraculous. That there's a hell-bound sinner, a person that's at war with God, a person that has fought their entire life against God, that all of a sudden, because they cried for mercy and they believed the promise of God, that God forgave them, and they came from the place of death into life. To go from a resident of hell to become a resident of heaven radical, complete, and absolute. Why? Because there's a God that is immutable, a God that does not change, a God that has given us promises that we can base our eternity upon, but you've got to be willing to embrace those promises. You can stay where you're at right now and say, okay, well, I believe those promises, but I'm not ready for it yet. Well, okay, that's your choice. (laughs) Continue in lies, continue in the deception, continue in all the pain and the hurt that's been there in your life. Continue it if that's what you want. God will not force you to do it, but know that if you die in that condition, God's immutability will be there as well and says that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let me go back to the opening verse. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Here is a promise of mercy of what he will do to those who believe. But the fifth verse, the verse just prior to that, The Lord says, so I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widow and the fatherless, who deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. My justice is absolute. It is unchangeable. It will be executed. It will show mercy to those who have fallen at my feet in repentance, and it will show wrath against those who have rejected it. God does not change. And so it's a matter of what we do with this changeless God. What do we do? Are we going to come before Him and say, well, you know, I really don't care. I want to do my own thing. You, he gave you a free will, and he will, He'll respect your free will. But understand, there are consequences. You will stand before this changeless God, before His changeless laws, and you will have to answer. And yet in the tenderness and kindness of God, He's calling you right now. Right now, at this very moment, he's calling you to run to him, to know his tender mercies. He longs to have you change from a child of hell into a child of God. He longs to do that. That's his heart's cry for you. The passion of God he is passionate about the souls of people, passionate about their salvation, passionate about redeeming them and all that he did on Calvary and to bring it as a reality to your life right now. He is passionate about it. He wants you to come to him. He longs to do good unto you. But you have to be willing to run. You have to be willing to say, God, I am so weary of my sin. I'm so weary of all the lies I believed. I'm so weary of, of what I've done to myself and to others. God, I hear what that preacher said, that you forgive. And God, I choose to believe you are faithful to that promise. I choose to believe that you forgive. Would everybody please stand? If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're a backslider... Opportunity is being given to you, opportunity of a lifetime, of eternity is being offered to you right now. And I don't think we have any comprehension of how great the privilege that this God who does not change is coming into the midst of a bunch of people that are given to change and offering those who are in rebellion against him the opportunity to repent. The goodness and kindness of God being showed to you, right now offered to you, at this very moment offered to you. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? Will you run home to Jesus? Will you go and say, God, I'm so tired of, of my life. I'm so tired of my sin. Will you run home to him and cry out and claim the promises that he has given you? See, these promises are for you. But they're only going to be of value to you if you are willing to have faith and obey them. If you reject Those promises that are offered to you of life and salvation, if you reject them, there are promises for those who rebel. Those are not the promises you want to receive, but you will receive them if you reject the kindness and mercy and love of God. He's holding out his arms. to you. What will you do with Jesus right now? You are making a choice. You cannot help but make a choice. You will make a choice. You're either going to make the choice to run to Jesus lay hold of his promises or you're going to choose to reject those promises but you will make a choice you can't do anything other than make a choice i just i just ask that you make the wisest choice you can right now that you run home to a savior that is just longing for you longing for you to come home his heart yearns for you if you are not a christian or if you're a backslider and you want to come home to jesus Willing to lay hold of the promise that he forgives and that he will forgive you if you repent. And I want you to come to this altar right now. I want you to come forward so I can have somebody pray with you. Is there anybody here that you are not a follower of Jesus, that you're backstage, that you're not where you should be?
1: a second here while we were worshiping this thought came to me and it was very strong but I knew I wasn't supposed to share it while we were worshiping but the thought was this God that is so beyond our imagination and overall and like we heard immutable has been pursuing many here All your life, he has worked behind the scenes. Even today, he has worked behind the scenes and called you. And so the thought that came to me was, what is left if we reject his mercy and his kindness? That is so long-suffering that every breath we take, it really is a gift from God because we don't know when our last breath is. And so my heart, as Glenn was giving the altar call, I just felt I had to share this. Please, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Don't have an evil heart of unbelief like we heard today. Because if you reject the mercy that God has shown to you, he has revealed to you, you keep suppressing the truth. There is nothing left but wrath. And it will be too late when you take your last breath. So please respond to him today.